0: After 20 minutes, 20 laughs, we'll go again. I am your least strenuous exercise. In the wan Edmonton summer, the sheets stay dry. No sweat, rivulet. Because sexuality has been used as a tool of colonization, Uh, Sexual violence, I should say, and the repression of Indigenous sexualities, right? This compulsory heteronormativity, this compulsory gender, this gender binarism. There's a lot of Indigenous people who are very pro, very sex positive. But there's also a lot of people, multi generational, that have been harmed through sexual violence. We've got missing and murdered Indigenous women as a critical problem across Canada and the United States. So we've got a lot of people who need to do a lot of sexual healing.
1: I'm Leanne. Welcome to Strippers and Sages a podcast that explores sex and eroticism through the lenses of art, culture, politics, spirituality, and racial justice. Today, it is a true honor to speak with Dr. Kim TallBear, Associate Professor in the Faculty of Native Studies at the University of Alberta. Dr. TallBear is also a Canada Research Chair in Indigenous Peoples, Technoscience, and Environment, and a Pierre Elliott Trudeau Foundation Fellow. Dr. Talbert is the author of Native American DNA, Tribal Belonging, and the False Promise of Genetic Science. Building on her own research on the role of technoscience in settler colonialism, Dr. Talbert also studies the roles of the overlapping ideas of sexuality and nature in the colonization of indigenous peoples. She is a regular commentator in U.S., Canadian, and U.K. media outlets on issues related to indigenous peoples, science, and technology, as well as critical non-monogamy. She is a regular panelist on the weekly podcast Media Indigena and has been a guest on podcasts included All My Relations, Medicine for the Resistance, For the Wild podcast, and Multiamory. Dr. Talbert is a co-producer of the sexy storytelling and burlesque show Teepee Confessions. She is a citizen of the Sisseton-Wapeton-Oyate in South Dakota and is also descended from the Cheyenne and Arapaho tribes of Oklahoma. We will link to her research websites and her blog on critical polyamory. This was quite a provocative conversation, and it gets fairly academic in some places, which I really appreciate because Dr. Talbert is weaving together such a rich tapestry of disciplines in her inquiry into critical polyamory. She discusses capitalism, colonization, state power, and sexuality to really underscore the extent to which our intimate relations determine and are determined by the structure of society. And she highlights how the state has manipulated, codified, and capitalized on our most intimate relationships since its inception. So not everyone is aware of the history, nor even the term settler colonialism, which is a distinct type of colonialism that functions through the replacement of indigenous populations with an invasive settler society. And it's really an ongoing system of power that normalizes the continuous repression and dispossession of indigenous peoples, culture, land, and resources. And many of us are unaware or just not thinking about how state-sanctioned marriage was a tool of settler colonialism. The nation-building project of the 19th century relied on marriage and the constitution of the nuclear family to dissolve collective indigenous land bases. Marriage was imposed by the church and the state and became instrumental to the accrual of private property. So Dr. Talbert goes into this history, and she challenges the so-called natural order of monogamy. And she's not saying that polyamory is the natural order, but rather she's dismantling the very notion that there is a natural order and highlighting the historical and anthropological precedent for non-monogamy. So what I'm really drawn to in her work is the idea of alternative and extended kinship networks. Marriage goes hand-in-hand with a nuclear family— And so when we talk about non-monogamy, we're really talking about extending our kin, which Dr. TallBear extends to include not only other humans, but also the non-human world. And this is really a powerful concept today as we're witnessing how our hyper-individualism, our social alienation, and our disconnection from the Earth's ecosystems are contributing to the collapse of our civilization. As Dr. TallBear and I discuss... Marriage continues to be incentivized by the state through taxes, healthcare, and zoning laws. And so it's worth examining why. Like, how is monogamy feeding systems of power that we wish to dismantle? To reimagine the blueprint of our romantic relationships is to reimagine the very structure of society, which I find really exciting and necessary. I personally practice monogamy because, as Dr. Talbert talks about in this episode, we may have unlimited love, but we have limited time. And so it's just not where I'm choosing to put my energy in this moment. But I am really called to the idea of deprioritizing or just taking away the hierarchy of romantic relationships as the sole source of partnership, intimacy, and kinship in our lives, or at least the nexus of that, right? And so what does it mean to truly extend our kin and to experiment with these alternate modalities of relating such that we are actually fortifying our social fabric and the social web within which we are embedded? So we also mentioned Donna Haraway, who is a well-known scholar. She is Professor Emerita in the History of Consciousness and Feminist Studies departments at UC Santa Cruz. And she was one of Dr. TallBear's thesis advisors. The Guardian referred to Dr. Haraway as the feminist cyborg scholar because her famous text is the Cyborg Manifesto which challenges traditional gender binaries and identity politics through a discussion of how cybernetics is blurring the boundaries between human and cyborg. And so what she's really doing with this piece is challenging the rigid dualisms in our society that often establish a paradigm like one paradigm or identity as normal and then the other pitted against it as the other or abnormal or incorrect. And I think the link between Dr. Haraway's work and Dr. Talver's work or one of the many links is that they're both challenging patriarchal, colonial, white supremacist ideas about naturalism and essentialism. So what we consider to be natural, like monogamy, like heterosexuality, like anthropocentrism, since such dogmas are largely phallogocentric, which is my new favorite word. I'm going to say it again. phallogocentric. I hope I'm not mispronouncing it think about it, phallus, right? So that it's it's privileging the masculine in the construction of meaning. So technoscience as an academic discipline is really focused on critiquing the production of knowledge. How knowledge is produced and what we consider to be, quote unquote, natural knowledge is influenced by gender politics. Technology is not neutral. The perspectives that have shaped our technological development and therefore our development as a species are not neutral or objective. They're entirely influenced by power relations. So both of these scholars are looking at how to recode our behavior, our communication, and our consciousness in order to subvert power. So before I get to the episode, I just want to read this quote by Dr. Talbert to introduce you all to her phenomenal body of work. Just like nations have staked a sole sovereign claim to land or male heads of household to their private acreage in a compulsory monogamy society, it is the norm for one to stake a sole sovereign claim in a beloved's body, writing all over previous names, loves, and relations that land and body have known. Dr. Talber, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. It's truly an honor to have you on the show and to discuss your tremendous body of work. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So I'd love to just start by talking about how you found your way to critical polyamory as a pedagogy, as well as an intellectual and a sexual practice. What were the personal and the academic influences that steered you toward this body of work? Well,
0: um... I started personally practicing polyamory a few months after I started researching it. So because I'm a researcher Mm -hmm. (laughs) and I knew it would be a time consuming and challenging life transition, I decided to read up on it first, uh, you know, to make sure I understood what the politics were. And also because I'm a scholar who studies race and decolonization, uh, a lot of what I had seen in polyamory communities in the Bay Area when I was a monogamous married person was that it looked like pretty white. Mm -hmm. you know, pretty uh, middle or upper middle class. And uh, even though I guess I'm middle class now, that's not my cultural background. And, you know, and I thought, okay, that that's not the kind of community I necessarily want to inhabit and build, but there's a lot that they're thinking about and doing around relationship practices that I think we could all think about. So that was really intriguing to me, but I knew they weren't necessarily my, my people. Right. So I started reading all the relationship literature, which I think most of polyamory literature is, uh, both for practical guidance on, you know, communication and, and what agreements look like and things like that. Cause I was coming out of a 15 year marriage. Um, and, uh, that stuff was helpful, but I was really troubled by the po- political assumptions, uh, and the class and racial assumptions, the complete lack of critique of, uh, of monogamy as part of a state structure. It was... Some vague notion that religion might be part of, you know, monogamy, uh, compulsory monogamy, and things like that. So I took both positive things from that relationship literature and began to build a critique before I even started doing it. And then when I started officially trying to pursue polyamory in January of 2013, I was already equipped with kind of an um, embryonic critique. Uh, and then I quickly started my blog because I thought, well, if I'm going to really do this, and it is so time consuming to make such a life transition, right? And polyamorous talk about that. You might have infinite love, but you have limited time, so you need to make some choices, right? Um, I thought the only way I'm going to really be able to do this in a really thoughtful, purposeful way is to write about it and turn it into part of my work. So I did that almost from the beginning, but I blogged anonymously for the first few years. And uh, it's, it was really a nice back and forth between reflecting on what I was learning and thinking, beginning to gather literature in the field. So I, the, one of the first things I came upon was, I think it was a 2006, special um, journal of sexualities on polyamory, in which I first encountered Angela Willie's work, and she wrote the book on doing monogamy that was published a few years ago. So I got into some of that literature early on, and then went back and forth between that and the relationship literature, and then my own relationships, which sort of served as de facto field observations. But of course, I don't write about them that way, because it's it would be a lot of anthropological work to get all of that consented. So I don't really do that, but...
1: Right. <laughs> yeah. So uh, certainly, I mean, coming from the Bay Area myself, I know what th- that culture that you're speaking about. and. Yeah. Uh, that, you know, it has this, this emphasis you've even written about the usual definition of promiscuity as random and indiscriminate. Mm -hmm. So how now that you've been deep in this inquiry, how can we strive to confront and critique a settler polyamory that focuses on this accumulation of partners, which has its own capitalist logic, instead of a critical cultivation of relationships with multiple partners, including non-human partners, as you also speak about, Um, what are what are sort of, the methodologies or the, um, relationships that you've been cultivating in your community that's that veer away from that stereotype. Well, it's interesting. So can, do you mind expanding
0: on when you talk about an accumulation of partners and that being a capitalist logic, can you say more about that?
1: Yeah. You know, I think that, um, just, just when I think about critical relating that Uh there's, um, you 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 speak also about defetishizing sex and decentering yeah. it as well, and so I think some you know everyone has their own way into polyamory, but if you mm-hmm. uh, maybe examine the dating sites, there's a lot of like looking for the unicorn, or it can become an accrual yeah. game, right, or a numbers game where I'm looking oh. for these partners, and or or it's like mm-hmm. a consumption of I'm consuming these sexual experiences, and oh, so okay,
0: um, I. Have- I'd be interested to know if there's people that have written about that in particular. I'd love to read it because I haven't actually made that critique, but my Marxism is really rudimentary. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, but I think that's really interesting. You're right. Um, and that's exactly what I'm I'm not interested in. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, and I, part of that could be my age as well as, I mean, I was 40, let's see, I'm 52 now. So I guess in 2013, what, I was 45 or something. Um, you know, I was not in... I was just in a different world. I had already settled into, a, um, even after being married for so long and finding that monogamous marriage didn't work for me. I'm still old enough to know Mm -hmm. myself well enough to say I want some sustained long-term connections because I got a lot of other stuff to do, right? I can't be just dating around. And also when you get older, I mean, I hate to say it, but it's kind of true because I live, even though I'm very non-mainstream in my politics, I'm very lefty. I, I look mainstream on the outside and I kind of go for people like that. Cause I come from a kind of small town conservative background. Um, mm-hmm. and all the, all the, everybody, my age, that is somebody I'd be attracted to. They've been married for a long time. <laughs> so, right. so it's, how did I get to that? Um, Yeah. So it's not like the, it's not like the polyamory dating sites that all the young, cool hit people. I'm not like in that crowd. That's not my thing, you know? Um, But definitely that kind of, that I knew right away, that was not going to work for me. That is not what I'm interested in. I'm not interested in those people, even when they seem interested in me, I don't get it. Um, So I think it, I really quickly jumped to the kind of relationality stuff, right? Because that's also what I write about in terms of my genetics. And I figured this out recently. Um, I just wrote a new paper talking, comparing the relational politics of genetic ancestry testing and DNA research, which the politics of DNA research, which my first book was on, to the concepts of relating in critical polyamory. And I thought those two were completely different projects, but it turns out in both of them, I'm critiquing settler notions of relating. Uh, and in the first instance, I'm critiquing settler notions of genetic kinship, uh, becoming hegemonic, you know, and displacing indigenous notions of kinship. And in the second body of work and in my life, I'm critiquing settler notions of both monogamy and non-monogamy, right? And and settler notions of non-monogamy and monogamy probably get at some of what you just referred to, right? Mm-hmm. Which is this kind of politics of consumption, right? Um, and so... I'm probably not going to fully answer your question. i'll skip ahead to the to the relation stuff because i study relationality uh, and and indigenous relational frameworks, it became clear to me that my politics of romantic relations were also entangled with my politics of relating with the planet and that's then what i also began to write about and that led me to also, Uh, think with my friend David Shorter at UCLA about disaggregating sexuality, the object of sexuality, back into relations. That's something that he talks about. So my relationships, my life living in Austin, Texas at the time, relating to all of the things around me in that city and that landscape and the literature on sexuality and polyamory, were all kind of cross-fertilizing one another.
1: Well, there's so much you just touched on that I want to unpack (laughs) with you. Um, I mean, first, I'd love for you to expand upon some of the themes that that you uncovered when you thought that you, that you were, had these two different disciplines that you were working on in terms of the DNA testing and yeah. the settler sexuality. i um, will let you start there. Yeah. So the first thing, and I think the
0: title of that chapter, which is coming out in a critical indigenous studies volume on Rutledge Press is called um, identity is a poor substitute for relations. Mm-hmm identity in quotes, right? And then it's something like critical polyamory, genetic ancestry, blah, blah, blah. It's a long, boring title. But what I'm thinking, what I came to understand was this notion of identity as it is talked about in relationship to genetics and genetic testing. And this notion of identity that gets talked about in relationship to non-monogamy have similar kinds of problems. So uh, like a polyamorous, you know, there's a there's been a debate. Um is, are we polyamorous by nature? Is it social? It's not a choice. I feel like this is it's a similar kind of argument that happens with um sexual orientation, right? Um is it what are what are the um entanglements of the biological versus the social? And it's a big debate that we have, people mm-hmm. who think about these things. And I I don't want polyamory or non-monogamy necessarily to calcify into an identity. Um, And I write about this in relationship to sexuality too. Why does a sexual orientation need to calcify into an identity? Now, I'm not one of the leading scholars in this area yet. So I'm doing some sort of experimental thinking around this, recognizing that we need to make these hard identity claims in order to fight for rights, correct? I mean, Mm -hmm. I'm not saying we shouldn't. There are strategic reasons to make those claims because the, the rights of people who are not heterosexual, who are not uh, willing to live according to a gender binary, you know, they're, they're violated all of the time and, and people's lives are made really difficult. Um, but, I, but if we could think about um, relating, right, in this kind of dynamic way, How do we relate? Uh, And that may change over the course of our life. With whom do we relate and how do we relate with them may change over the course of our life. And I like to think about those practices, uh, which allows for dynamism and change versus calcifying our practices into an identity claim. And so I don't want to necessarily, I'm not invested in this idea that to be polyamorous is some sort of natural biological inclination. It doesn't really That's not what I'm invested in, right? But I am invested in making space for people to relate in a variety of ways because compulsory monogamy, compulsory heterosexuality, compulsory marriage, this is crushing people's souls and it's actually violent and committing violence in their lives, right? And so, did I answer that question?
1: Yeah, you know... (laughs) <laughs> that it's really a conversation versus like, a <laughs> yeah. yeah 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 um i mean i think this idea of compulsory monogamy is one i really want to underscore because i don't think that uh, of course the dominant culture doesn't think about it this way and in the way that well queerness is just the alternative to the established like normy sexuality or polyamory mm-hmm. is just the aberration, mm-hmm. right? That I think mm-hmm. is what also becomes problematic about these identities is that it mm-hmm. it so often privileges uh, one identity as the standard and others as a default. Right.
0: Right. I was just saying, and I've been saying this lately queer in relationship to what? So I was in an in, right. uh, an indigenous queer theory panel and two-spirit panel, mm-hmm. and people kept throwing the word queer around. And I looked at my friend who, all, who also studies indigenous sexualities, and we both went queer in relationship to what? You know, a Hawaiian kind of practice of sexuality, same-sex practices, that wasn't queer. Mm-hmm. That was a norm,
1: <laughs> right?
0: <laughs> so right. yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, You write in terms also of... of This expansive idea of polyamory, you write, in my indigenous and Dakota traditions, polyamorous multiplicity is not only about human relations, it's an ethic that also focuses on multiple relations with place and values, the hard work of relating to and translating among different knowledges. So can you talk more about this expansive view of polyamory as it extends to the non-human? And Mm -hmm. how does this idea of polyamorous multiplicity deepen or complicate traditional indigenous perspectives on our relationship to the land? End, and what are the ecological implications of that? I don't know. Gosh, to me, it seems so
0: natural to relate multiply now that it's hard for me to think about that aha moment that I first had. Um, I mean, I think a lot of what I've been doing, what polyamory has taught me uh, in the way that I practice it and think about it, is it and other people talk about this particularly relationship anarchists which i actually think re- relationship anarchy is probably closer to the type of relating i'm thinking about mm. than than mainstream polyamory if there is such a mainstream um this idea not only should we allow for dynamism in terms of who and how we have sex and and, uh, the kinds of identities that might produce over time and space? But also even within particular relationships, you know, I'm trying to get away from finiteness, from hard categories. Uh, This idea that there is a blossoming of a relationship and then a solidification of it in the form of marriage or commitment, or there's a breakup and it's over and it's failed. I like to think more about the you know, the transitions in the way that two or more people relate. So when I left Austin, Texas, I didn't break up with a couple of the people that I was seeing. I'm still in relationship with them. Now, I don't see them every day because I don't mm-hmm. live there. Um, and, our, and our relationships might have evolved into something less sexual right but that could just be because we're not close together right now or it could be because they would have evolved that way anyway i still call them sweeties right i still call them i mean you struggle to find language for this mm-hmm. right but i don't i i would also call my sweetie who i have a relationship with there i would call his wife a sweetie too even though she's not a romantic partner because i love her so much you know mm-hmm. my love for her might be slightly different than my love for him but um so i i'm tr- I, i'm we struggle to or i do and i think a lot of us do struggle to find language to capture the dynamism of the way that two or more people relate over the course of time and space. And that's what I'm struggling to articulate. And then you begin to see how it's really easy to go from human to non-human. Um, I, I love the landscape of Austin, Texas. I loved the little green lizard that lived in my backyard. I loved having the bats fly over every night. I loved the smell after a really hard rain. I'm a thunderstorm and river and sky person. I lived right next to a river there. Mm. Um, you know, I, I live next to a river now I get up and every morning, this is my, this is my rock. The river is my rock, not a nesting partner. I don't have one. The river is my rock and it's always there. Right. I don't know did I
1: Mhm. <laughs> so. Yeah. Um you know you've also spoken I think you were expanding upon Audre Lorde's idea of the erotic and that's mm-hmm. that's been a jumping off point for this podcast as well where again it's it's our our relationality I think is what you're getting yeah, at yeah. and it's what makes us feel connected yeah. to and that what we feel connected to of course is of course, it goes beyond the non-human. It's actually such a right, a, an obvious and concept I, if you think about it.
0: And I think this leaves space too. I have so enjoyed when I've gone to say Converge Con or Solo Polycon. Meeting asexual polyamorous, because they really get and demonstrate relationality in a way that just defetishizes sex. It's not that they never have sex, but it's just not at the center of their what they pursue in relating, right? And and so you'll have romantic asexual polyamorists, you'll have aromantic polyamorists who, who really like to relate through sex, but they don't have a romantic kind of heart in the same... I just... I love people like that because even though we're, we're working through these categories and like, why do we have to? But we do because what they're doing is non-normative, right? Mm-hmm. But I, there are so many people out there who, who even though I might say I'm using Indigenous relational frameworks, there are plenty of non-Indigenous people that are already living in ways where they're trying to decolonize from what we call settler sexuality, even though they may not have had that term. And I, when I meet non-Indigenous people, which most of them are at these kinds of conferences, they are trying to do decolonial work. They just don't always think about what they're doing is against the state. I think a lot of more radical queer people do. Angela Willey, who wrote on Doing Monogamy, said to be queer is to be against the state. Right. I'm like, yeah, but not everybody thinks about it as that definition, right?
1: Totally, totally. Well, <laughs> yeah. that's a good segue. You know, um, I, I'd love to read S- Scott Morganson's definition of settler sexuality and then maybe have you unpack it for us because it's a mouthful. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah. we can get into that history that we're talking about. So he defines it as a white national hetero and homo normativity that regulates indigenous sexuality and gender by supplanting them with the sexual modernity of sex. Of Settler subjects. And his Mm -hmm. abridged version would be, it's essentially the heteropatriarchal and sexual modernity exemplary of white settler civilization. So help us understand this idea. And especially, I'd love you to um, comment on the sexual modernity part, because I think Mm -hmm. that there's a history there that that points to, of course, which is to say that monogamy, which is now the status quo, really became the status quo Mm -hmm. at a particular Mm -hmm. moment, yeah. In this nation's so, shaping.
0: Yeah. There are multiple scholars, if people are so inclined to read on this. Scott Morgenson is an anthropologist at Queens University in um, uh, Ontario. And uh, he ha- he's he got a book called The Spaces Between Us. And he's also got some articles where he, he for example, in his book has a chapter on the radical fairies in Oregon, mm-hmm. um, in California. And he looks at different um, gay communities or queer communities uh, and And the work that they do that is in part, I mean, is in part radical, but it's also in part kind of scripted by their desire to either uphold or reform the state. It's scripted by histories of settler colonialism, the theft of indigenous land, indigenous erasure. So he's really good about looking at the rise of, um, both normative and non-normative sexualities within the settler colonial state of the U S and how that's entangled with state making. Right. So, um, So yes, we might have natural inclinations to relate in a certain way, but the ways in which we have romantic or sexual relationships, um, room for that is made within an ongoing narrative about the state. I don't know how to put that more simply. I'd have to give you an example. I think when he's talking about the radical fairies, for example, so, so men leaving these urban areas to go back to the land, you know, to try to find some kind of queer mode of life in the country, he's like, well, what makes that possible? The theft of indigenous land, the emptying of this land of indigenous people, right? And so then people aren't even thinking about that. And then those narratives of the vanishing Indian, the vanishing native, allow those same queer subjects to appropriate these kinds of representations of indigeneity to help themselves belong to the land. And you can have sympathy in part for what they're doing because they're pushing back against a severely oppressive heteronormative Culture, on the other hand, in order to build their own alternative way of living and their own space, they are also relying on cultural and actual appropriation of land. And so he has this really rich chapter on that. And that's in part Mm -hmm. what he's talking about when he's talking about pushing back against settler sexuality. There have also been a couple of feminist historians who have looked at uh, Sarah Carter in Canada and Nancy Cott in the U.S., who have looked at the uh, role of compulsory monogamy in building the U.S. and Canada and the imposition of monogamy, not only on indigenous peoples, but all other kinds of cultures that were immigrating to the U.S. So um, also on uh, people from certain parts of Asia or Africa, um, Mormons, you know, um, and the role that that played in uh, controlling women, controlling children and controlling land and facilitating the inheritance of property according to a heteropatriarchal system. Um, there's also Angela Willie, who I mentioned, who has some really great chapters on the history of sexology to get to the science part. And so at the turn of the 20th century or the late 19th century, you've got sexologists, especially in Europe, where they're going through this transition from arranged marriage Uh, to uh, love marriage and they're advocating that love marriage is a sign of a more evolved people so that's a very classist and racist argument that's happening among sexological scientists at the turn of the 20th century where they're promoting love marriages they're portraying arranged marriages as backwards which in a sense is helping dismantle the extent the extended family Mm -hmm. Uh, Foucault's written about how uh, homosexuality becomes an object or an idea before heterosexuality Mm -hmm. the rise of the state after the fall of the monarchies they're trying to control the population well without the king one of the ways the state controls the population is is through these kinds of techniques of management right the imposition of new norms of what's normal right mm-hmm. how should we live what's a more involved citizen a more evolved citizen supposed to do so there's yeah all kinds of scholars you can read to look at the different aspects of how Monogamy becomes becomes the norm. How heterosexuality becomes the norm when, in many places across time and space, humans have been relating in much more multiple ways. Right?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Not right. only indigenous people.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And this is going to be a very rich resources page from this interview. We'll mm-hmm. link to everything mm-hmm. that you just mentioned. Um, so can can you elaborate a little bit on what indigenous relational models uh, looked like in your own Dakota lineage prior to this particular moment of colonization in the 19th century?
0: Yeah, I can. And it, there is some interesting scholarship on that, too. Um, but some of it's really compromised. Like some of what we have are old anthropological accounts, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of, there are indigenous studies scholars who have critiqued the way that anthropology looked at indigenous sexual practices and family Mm -hmm. practices. It's always through that colonial lens, right? So we need to go back and look at the archive with a grain of salt, but it's still helpful to us, right? Because missionaries in the States, you know, Outlawed non-monogamy. I mean, they actively outlawed it. Uh, they actively, of course, suppressed same-sex practices. So we have, in a sense, lost. I think some of the knowledge about our ancestors' uh, um, kinship and sexual practices because we were so, are they were so brutally suppressed by the church, right? Because different church denominations were given, like, different tribes and areas to go in and missionize, right, uh, by mm-hmm. the state. So, but. Uh, ca- Catherine Denial uh, has a book on, I think it's called Marriage in Dakota and Ojibwe Country. Um, I can give you the reference later, where she talks a little bit about the kinds of non-monogamous marriages, country marriages, and then more formal marriages that were happening between Indigenous people and settlers. So there was this kind of, and then among Indigenous people as well, there were much, um, there was marriage and divorce, I guess, as you can translate it, but it it's, among our people, it seemed to be a bit more flexible. Um, we also know that uh, men in our community had multiple wives, but it's not always clear that all those relationships were sexual. So I suspect, and there's some evidence to this, that you know we talk a lot now in polyamorous communities about why do we have to ha- be um, living with the same, per- or maybe relationship anarchists talk about this more, why must we live and nest with the same person whom we have children with, whom we share bank accounts with, who we have sex with. Why do all those things have to go together? Can we not disaggregate those ways of relating? It's very, very rigid and oppressive to think you need to find the one person and do all of those things with them when you may be compatible for a couple of those things, but not all of those things, right? Um, And so taking that lesson and thinking about my ancestors, it seems like there was a bit more um, picking and choosing of. Of what went together, so uh, we had a tradition of if a if if a man's wife's sister lost her her spouse, her husband, you know, her co-parent, whatever, totally not totally appropriate term we want to take now mm-hmm. uh, to death, that he could take her on as another wife. Now, did they have sex? Who knows? Maybe not. You know, <laughs> but it was taking on um, it was taking her. And her children on right as part of the extended family. Uh, divorce was was flexible as far as we know. So there there were also punishments for adultery. I guess it's really hard to talk about these things because we're speaking in English. Right. Um, there's not a one-to-one translation, uh, and so this is what I want to do in my next book too. I want to go back through these problematic archives, mm-hmm. and and look at what some of those practices were. But in short, uh, they were uh, quite a bit more flexible, as as far as we can tell. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: can you talk a little bit more about the history in terms of how marriage became a tool for the accrual of private property? I know that there were. Um, like for men as households qualifying for a certain acreage and why, again, yeah for of, mm-hmm.
0: For native people in the US and Canada, so you had these homestead acts, right? So you had, once the land was emptied of native people, once they were relocated, once there'd been massacres, starvation, epidem- or epidemics and pandemics- which there were, and the land was more empty. That then that was when the federal governments came in and said, "Okay, we're going to give a certain amount of acreage away to new homesteaders. You know, either new immigrants or people moving from other places in the country. Uh, and you get a certain amount of acreage if you're the head of household, which is always a man. A woman could never be a head of household. You'd get a certain amount of acreage for a wife. Well, right there, they're promoting marriage, right, and they're promoting heterosexual unions. You get a certain amount of ac- acreage for each additional child. So there's a real promotion of the nuclear, heterosexual nuclear family and, and, and state sanctioned marriage. Um, so, so this is, uh, and then this happened one, they, they would not only give land to non-Indigenous people, to settlers, they would also give it to Indigenous people as a way to getting them to assimilate into the nuclear, the heterosexual nuclear family. Well, what do you do when you have uh, plural marriage? Well, you need to give up all those other wives. So you're supposed to just cut out the rest of your family. Right, so, but, but you need land, right? And there were some other kinds of amenities that went along with that. Uh, this is also the imposition of private property. A man wills his property to his sons, right? And you can see where in this kind of uh, tying of marriage and family to land inheritance, the women and children become property in a sense as well because they're they're valuable, right? They're valuable. They help you get land and resources. so right.. Um,
1: uh. Yeah. I mean, and I think with that history is where, why we can understand when we say how monogamy continues to be compulsory today, that we're not untethered Mm -hmm. from that. And uh, it's still how our society is completely operating.
0: Well, there are so, I mean, there are so many incentives. I was talking to a Mm -hmm. relative yesterday who's getting married and, and I was, you know, like, and every time any of my friends or relatives get married, I wish people all the happiness in the world. I just don't know why marriage, I don't (laughs) actually think in the long-term marriage provides us much happiness. Like, but whatever. <laughs> but but they were saying, well, you know, we're going to get like, we're going to pay less taxes. I'm going to get this, this, and this benefit. I'm like, exactly, exactly. And this is what the state wants. You know, they right. tie all of these benefits to marriage. Why doesn't everybody, this is especially in the United States, right? In Canada, we have more universal health care. Um, but in the U.S., like, how do you get health care? You either get it through your job or you get it through your spouse. And it just promotes marriage, you know, it really promotes marriage.
1: And I can see how it's a vestige of a system. In what ways is it still serving the state for m- monogamy and marriage to become so incentivized?
0: Who was I reading that was really talking about... Uh... And this would go back to, I can't remember who I was reading now because I'm on a, a non monogamies researcher's list serve. So who knows? Um, I think, so I'm just going to have to think through this a bit. I know somebody has written about the fact that if we are spending more time building relations, uh, Acting on our desires. None of this is good for capitalism, right? I'm sure somebody's written on this and I just can't, I can't remember because this isn't really my area. But, you know, um, it's better for capitalism that we are in these kinds of really structured nuclear family and marriage relationships where we're thinking about being productive, right? Right. Uh, versus out there consorting in these kind of multiple ways, it takes a lot of time too to totally. be polyamorous. And I, I'm sure there's polyamory researchers that have looked at that because if there's there is some anecdotal evidence too in the in the polyamory relationship literature that kind of maps on to what I've seen in my own personal life. A lot of polyamorous people are actually people who spend more time thinking through communication processes, relationship building processes, and seem less career focused, mm-hmm. you know, less money driven. I think mm-hmm. that's really really interesting, mm. right? Um, because all it, as I said, and all of these, and we always say this in polyamory communities, this takes so much time. Well, the more time you're spending on relationship building and communicating, the less time you're spending working for the man, right? right. <laughs> building his wealth.
1: <laughs> so- right. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it the nuclear family is a very weak entity as well. And so I think that plays into state power. And I've just been watching here we are in this pandemic where, you know, I think so much of this has risen to the surface when we're all quarantined or if you're single, then you're totally in, in this isolated bubble if you don't have these systems and how much more. And then we're looking at our, our upcoming election. And just when I look at who has the energy to be putting towards that as well like it's Mm -hmm. as you're saying you either have the energy to be putting towards polyamory or your job or you also have the Mm -hmm. energy to put towards overthrowing the state or your job and so I think that yeah why we see these these more radical communities experimenting with the relationships that they're also thinking and and that the the working for the man also has this individualism behind it as well it goes into your own survival Mm -hmm. your small nuclear Mm -hmm. bubble and like that's who I have to protect and yes I would like Yes, I believe in these other systems, but I don't have the time or the energy and I have to take care of only these few people in my yeah. life. And so yeah. those are my priorities. And so, um,
0: yeah, my friend Cammy Chisholm's always talking about this. Do you know Cammy's work?
1: No, I don't. Uh, Cammy
0: also ha- Cammy also went to History of Consciousness. She's a filmmaker who lives in Toronto now, but uh, has a film called Pride Denied. Mm-hmm. And is making a new film about uh, citizenship and the kind of violence, I think, of citizenship and uh, national borders, but is often talking about this kind of stuff. Yeah.
1: Mm. So. On a related note, the city of Somerville, Massachusetts, recently became one of the yeah. first cities to recognize polyamorous relationships. And so, as we're talking about uh, how the nuclear family is serving, the status quo in the state, can you help us envision what the widespread systemic implications might be? Were such an ordinance adopted on a national level? Like if we get to really imagine what is the restructuring? Yeah.
0: I had some critiques of that though, because I know I was reading the ordinance and we were discussing it on my non-monogamies researcher listserv. Mm. I think they require um, only one, two of the people in a like multiple relationship can actually be married. There's there's still a privileging of marriage and there's still hmm. couple privileging in that, right? But of course it's still great. Like there's a, a lot step. they're trying to do. It is, yeah, but it's it's really hard. I think, so already people are looking at the ways in which it's, uh, maybe more in the mode of marriage equality. It's doing a little bit, but it's still ultimately reinforcing the kinds of dominant structures we're really trying to push up against.
1: What might the restructuring of society look like? What are some of the places where these systems can be remade?
0: Right away, we either have to have marriage among as many people as want to be married or no marriage. I mean, right you know, right away, because the, the one of the chief problems that's going to come out of this is the fact that only two people can be married, no matter what their sex is. Um, so that, I think that's one of the first things, um, also healthcare stuff. And, and so this is also why people are getting marriage or or commitment ceremonies in the States that allow that, right. Is that they need healthcare. I mean, we need universal healthcare and when we don't have universal healthcare, when it's tied to jobs and it's tied to marriage, you're, you're barely going to be able to tweak those systems, um, with, Yeah.
1: Right. It's all about the privatization is what we're talking Mm -hmm. about. So that if you Mm -hmm. can extend your kin network, which I want to talk about what that, what that means more. um, Yeah. I think that point that you have been making of just how the state is set up when we don't have the social fabrics or the universal Mm health care in place to support individuals, then that also kind of strong arms us into Mm -hmm. these, these um, partnerships. And so part of, perhaps making space for reimagining relationality between people will require like a more of a social network and a state network that is supporting basic human needs so that it's not, it's not just about survival, that you're not mating Mm -hmm. to survive. Mm. Um, You've spoken about language before, and of course, you know, we're, we're, using English, the colonizing language that is Mm -hmm. um, limiting in so many ways. And so I'm curious if there is any Dakota language that you would share with us that has more expansive view about some of the ideas that we're talking about.
0: Um, So this is some of the research I need to do. I've been taught because I didn't grow up speaking the language. Um, We started Language Revival. I grew up hearing it. So my great-grandparents' generation and my great-grandmother raised me uh, were the last generation to really speak it. And they were born in the around 1900. Um, my great, my grandmother's generation, so born in the 20s and my mother born in the 40s, they were all in residential school where the language was not allowed.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: so then you get to my generation where we're no longer in residential school, but there, but the two generations before us had the language taken from them. And so when I was a teenager, we started tribal schools and, and language nests and language revitalization. So now, 30, 40 years later, you have young people learning the language in school. So we're in this moment of incredible language revitalization. And I was on Facebook because all of Indian countries on Facebook. Mm-hmm. And I was talking to some young uh, Dakota language uh, learners, uh, people that are really into it. And there's uh, a really vibrant program at the University of Minnesota in the Twin Cities. A lot of the tribal colleges have Dakota, Lakota language programs. And uh, we were talking about this, the need to have um, some kind of conversation and language group around uh, terms around sexuality, because that's the other thing. A lot of our grandparents and great-grandparents, even though they might have been speakers or their parents were, sexuality was so repressed Mm -hmm. um, that they're not comfortable. And I've seen that up here as well among Cree speakers, They're, they're not the old older, fluent people are not necessarily comfortable mm-hmm. speaking about these things, right? So that's one of the projects, I think. And I think that would be really, and I've brought this up too with um, Cree language speakers up here and Dakota language speakers and and some of the some of the more conservative, um, and they're lovely because they're just, they have such a wealth of knowledge about the language and the worldview that in here isn't that, but they're like, uh, I don't really <laughs> want to talk about sex.
1: Right. <laughs> And so, so what, that's one
0: of the projects.
1: That's a great project. What tell tell us a little yeah. bit more about your personal upbringing and if if sex wasn't spoken about, at least what sort of kinship structures you grew up with and how they you. Well,
0: I mean, if it was spoken about, it would be whispered, and that is also. I remember my great grandmother. Um, she was uh, she was Métis and Cree. She came from Saskatchewan and then married my Dakota great grandfather there's a, and I can't even say it because it was like, it's, it was like the C word, right? Like that's how she said it. And it was a native word. I knew that. And then she, when she was talking about your vagina, she would use this word. (laughs) And I've since heard it up here. And I'm like, I knew that was from up here. Um, And so she'd whisper it or they would whisper or speak the language if they wanted to talk about something dirty, quote unquote, that the kids weren't supposed to hear. So in fact, I do think some of this stuff survives, but it's in that kind of moment, right? Mm -hmm. And so can you reclaim it? So, Yeah, I was raised by my great grandmother um, for until I was eleven. My mom uh, was—I lived a little bit with my mom, but she was often in Minneapolis working uh, on urban native uh, projects. She was a planner and a grant writer, and I preferred living on the reservation with my great grandmother. I just—I like living with her. It was a quiet, safe. You know, nurturing environment. My mom was always working. Um, and then I was also raised with my grandmother when I moved across town when I was a teenager because my great grandmother had such a tiny house. I had to sleep with her every night, which I didn't mind. But when you're a teenager, you want your own space, right? So I moved across town to my grandma's house where I got a bedroom. And then finally moved with my mom the last few years of high school. But I always was going between grandma, mom, and great grandma. You know, the women in my family raised the children. My dad was never around that much. And in my hometown, My grandmother's, 10 of her 11 grandchildren lived in that town, except my mom was the only one. Um, Almost all of her great-grandchildren were there. We had a huge extended family and people would just come over, walk into grandma's house, not knock, you know, because her door is always open. And my uncle would come for lunch every day when he, you know, take lunch off, you know, from work. And it was just, it it was nice. That, That was nice. We didn't have a ton of money. And there was a lot of racism because in any reservation border town, it's a white, native town. Uh, white people controlled the, the the banks, the farms, the schools, all the businesses. Um, but there was such a huge social support there. Like my grandma never drove her whole life, uh, but she had enough children and grandchildren around to run all her errands for her. It was not a problem that she never learned how to drive, right? You know, and she would lend money to her grandchildren and great-grandchildren. And there was a real circulation of resources. It's not. It wasn't all like we all got along all the time of course you know any extended family has its uh negative dynamics too but it was uh despite i think being a little bit poor and there it being a lot of racism there it was still a also a nurturing environment where i learned a lot of oral history and a lot about our history and mm. yeah
1: you can see how how being raised in a network like that would also lay a foundation for how you choose to relate now in your romantic
0: yeah and how i and how i raised my child too i think you know, people either didn't get married or they get married and get divorced. It was, I mean, there was the intention to marry, and the more middle class aspiring to be middle class people in our family had white weddings. But that was like what the the you know, white people would often say to you, "Oh, you're not like those other Indians, you know, you're and I would hear that or, you know, I mean, so the yeah, the the ideal was you have the white wedding. You're monogamous. Stop being dysfunctional." But really, our system really worked, you know, and 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 uh, so we both, I think, have the lived experience of it working, and yet we are still stigmatized by whites, and sometimes stigmatize ourselves. And this is why I'm open about this stuff. I want us to stop stigmatizing the ways that we live in extended relation that actually work, despite the horrors of colonization. We have retained a lot of ways of relating that still really work. The thing is, they're just stigmatized as dysfunctional because our kids were taken away too for a lot of these reasons, right? Mm-hmm.
1: Mm hmm. Can you talk as you're talking now, you're you're illustrating what I sort of deduced in terms of your work with Donna Haraway and uh, particularly the Kin Not Population Project. Uh, I know that you're a part yeah. of that forum. I'd love for you to talk a little bit about that and and again, how these extended kin networks um, play into the, that idea.
0: Yeah. You know, that was an interesting project. So Donna Haraway and Adele Clark decided to edit this little prickly paradigm press book called Making Kin Not Population. Uh, Probably, I think we did the first panel at the um, 4S meeting, which was the Society for Social Studies of Science, Denver. It might've been in 2015. I can't remember exactly. Uh, So we did that panel and there were multiple scholars on there. And originally Donna wanted to call it Make Kin Not Babies. Right. (laughs) And that was pretty controversial. (laughs) That was controversial. She even had stickers made up. It wasn't controversial to me because I'm non-natalist. I'm like, you know, somebody in our family is going to have kids, you know, this doesn't need to be a goal for everybody, right? Like, you know, people are going to breed. I mean, we don't need to encourage it. It's going to happen anyway. So, you know, we should hold up the role of the auntie and the uncle. And, you know, I just, anyway, I just think compulsory breeding, I know that's a and is there a more politically correct term for that <laughs> compulsory childbearing you know i i i just think it's a problem i think it's a problem for individuals and i think it's and i do think it's a problem for the planet because there's so much consumption and there's such an aspiration to consumption, right? And it's true, rich people can in the US and Canada consume way more than all of these brown and black populations around the world that are looked at as the, the population problem. They're hardly consuming anything, right? So we talked about that in that panel, you know, we're like, and I'll, I'll say, I'm not talking about brown people not having babies. I don't think rich white people should have them because they consume everything, you know and the the and their the lifestyle that they're holding up is the one we should also aspire to is not sustainable and so and they're kind of pro childbearing pro natalism pro marriage is also part of that but I, it's true, I was probably the only person on the panel that would say that so strongly. And I know people didn't expect that from an Indigenous woman. A lot of other people on the panel were, so we had a discussion as a group, let's change it to make kin, not population, in order to kind of get away from that critique that this is Malthusian, right? Um, but we were always really clear, we're making a strong class and race critique here. We're not going after poor brown and Black people with this with this critique at all
1: right so. and you're you're of course taking into the consideration also the forced sterilization that has occurred over history yeah. who's traditionally had access to mm-hmm. to yeah. resources so if mm-hmm. yeah but
0: you know it's interesting too that that choice discourse right also is really strong um among you know i we also heard back from middle class non-white women you know p- this this idea that it's my choice and i just you know i got to write about that more I don't know. I don't, I think it's, I think it's too individualistic of an interpretation of what it is to produce a new human and bring them into this world. Right. I, I really do like to think more about, you know, when you make that decision, if we want to get into a kind of group relational thing, you're not only making that decision for yourself, you're making it for others as well. And Donna says in the book, children should be rare, but precious. I'm kind of of that mindset too right now, but um. Mm-hmm you know, we, we were, we're definitely in the minority in thinking that way. And, uh, anyway,
1: it's a valuable conversation and a brave one. I, yeah. I
0: see. Yeah. Most of our, most of our co-panelists and co-authors were not in the same boat on that mm-hmm. one. And, and I'm even, I think more hardcore about it than, than Donna. So Yeah.
1: I know that you studied under her or that she was your thesis advisor. Yeah. And of course, so techno science plays a large role in your work. Can you speak yeah. a little bit more about just techno science in terms of how it informs some of the themes that we're, we're dissecting?
0: Uh, well, she co advised me with James Clifford. Um, uh, who, yeah. So, so which was a really great duo of people to advise me because I was writing on the politics of science and technology, which is what we, we, meet, we say techno science instead of science and technology. Uh, but I was also writing on the politics of indigeneity and that's sort of what Jim had written about, right? The sort of notion of indigeneity and, and how is it defined and how does it work itself out in different parts of the world? So it, so it was great that they were both at Hiscon. Um, but the, you mean, how does the, how does the techno science stuff fit into my work?
1: Yeah, because you did you you started yeah. with that and then you
0: yeah and then mm-hmm. I moved into polyamory yeah because I'm looking at the politics of science and the way that indigenous bodies have been looked upon as subjects of experimentation mm-hmm. as the raw materials of the biological sciences you know and anthropological sciences so bones blood DNA get used to to uh, support shore up settler narratives about the population of the world, about human evolution. Uh, They get used, our our bodies and the bodies of our ancestors uh, help build research labs, research careers, you know, scholarship, universities. I mean, it's not only our land that have been the raw materials of building the nation state, it's our literal bodies, our literal blood and DNA continue to be appropriated um, and developed, right, by by the capitalist state in order to build that state. So uh, a lot of my work is looking at how science was deeply embedded in colonialism. People think it's the church, it's, you know, it's only, it's, uh, it's racist federal policy. Science was right in there as part of that.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, just to pivot, uh, you helped to produce the sexy storytelling and burlesque show TP Confessions, a performance Uh event with anonymous audience confessions. So what can one expect at a TP Confession performance and why is performance a platform and perhaps burlesque in particular for reimagining and decolonizing sexuality?
0: Well, so our parent show is Bedpost Confessions in Austin, Texas, and it was founded Mm -hmm. by four women down there. And it's a wonderful show. And they agreed to sign a contract with us and and give us the the template for the show. Um, When I uh, moved to Edmonton in 2015, we were... um, doing an indigenous masculinity symposium. And we needed a final night's entertainment. And I called my friend, Julie Gillis, one of the founders of Bedpost Confessions and asked if we might replicate their show. And they love the idea of us indigenizing the show and doing it up here. So the TP Confession show uh, has uh, four performers uh, usually. So we will have 12 to 15 minute performances. They can be spoken word artists, storytellers, burlesque dancers. We've had a rope tie demonstration
1: before So at this point in the conversation, Zoom decided to crash and we were unable to reconnect. But Dr. Talbert was extremely generous in recording her responses to my remaining questions. So from here out, it's a little less conversational, but no less fascinating, that I assure you. And at the end, Dr. Talbert shares some of her exquisite hybrid writing, these short form critical polys that she's been working on. And they're just truly salacious in the best of ways and, and just beautiful. So I encourage you to listen. So at this point, I asked Dr. TallBear to share some of the confessions that she remembers from these TP confessional events, and then to talk about why it's important for people to discuss intimacy and sexuality in a public forum. I then asked her to elaborate on how burlesque can serve as a platform of intimacy for decolonizing sexuality.
0: People will have uh, confessions about uh, things they've done with their partners Uh, you know, new kinds of kinky things or they'll have funny ones like somebody said they farted during sex and they lied and said it was the blinds rattling in the wind or um, they'll sometimes people make really funny ones like having somebody said they had a dream that they were in some, it was a, it was a guy saying they were in some kink scene with Justin Trudeau Uh, And then, so what we'll do is we'll take confessions from the previous show. And we will find visuals online that are not pornographic but kind of funny or Ill- illustrative, and we'll then put them on the PowerPoint for the next show. So at the beginning of the show, and then during intermission, we have a scrolling PowerPoint with uh, performer bios and pictures, with uh, sample confessions, with uh, uh, advertising information for our sponsors, sex toy stores, and stuff like that. So as the audience is filing in, and then during intermission, they can kind of laugh—they'll laugh at all the confessions coming across. Sometimes we get poignant ones too. Um, I remember one time uh, somebody saying that they had been celibate for 15 years and it was just absolutely torture. Uh, People will talk about the lack of intimacy. Um, We got another one too that was both poignant and funny. Somebody said they had uh, extreme erectile dysfunction, but they're really good with their tongue. And, you know, it's just, they had really... um, they're, they're funny, they're sexy. They, sometimes people will have a confession where they'll say, thank you for helping me think about being able to come back to a place of sex positivity after sexual assault that I've been struggling with for years, you know, and we, so it's, we'll go back and forth between the MCs deciding on who wants to read what. And um, we, I think we, do we, so, we sometimes might give a, we give content warnings as well. They just they run the gamut um from, from sexy to kinky to funny to to poignant to to sad, but in a way where people are attempting to um try to find a way to think again about embracing sexuality when it had been used as a form of violence against them. And of course, because we do an indigenized sexy storytelling show, we've done it in Edmonton, we've done it in Saskatoon, which is a really, uh, it's a big native city and in, in Saskatchewan. Uh, we've done it in Winnipeg, another city with a large indigenous population. We've done it in Toronto, uh, we've done it in uh, Seattle, um, we had a show scheduled for Connecticut, but it got canceled due to COVID. Our San Francisco show got canceled due to COVID. So we've done it all across Canada. We've done it in Vancouver as well at the Native American and Indigenous Studies Association. So we we do tend to have, when we do the show in Canada, more Indigenous people in the audience than you would have, say, if you did it in many parts of the U.S., but we've certainly got invitations to do it across the U.S. We're just a little bit on hiatus now because of uh, covid Uh, And we're, we're doing a lot of administrative work, starting a theater cooperative and getting our bank accounts and everything in order right now. So when we can come back to the theater, we're, we're ready to do that in a kind of new and, uh, um, a way in which our, our institutional infrastructure is, is built better. But, um, where was I? So, uh, I was talking about having a lot, a lot of indigenous people in our audience and because sexuality has been used as a tool of colonization, uh, sexual violence, I should say, and the repression of indigenous sexualities, right? This compulsory heteronormativity, this compulsory gender, this gender binarism. There are people who, uh, indigenous people, I mean, there's a lot of indigenous people who are very pro, very sex positive, but there's also a lot of people multi-generational that have been harmed through sexual violence. Uh, We've got missing and murdered indigenous women, you know, Know, uh, as a, as a critical problem across Canada and the United States, uh, we've had a tremendous amount of sexual violence and other kinds of abuse in residential schools in Canada and boarding schools in the United States. Uh, the, the squashing of, uh, you know, alternative sexualities, which were traditional in our communities. So we've got a lot of people who need to do a lot of sexual healing. And, uh, so the show can be challenging for some, but I, I think it can also be really healing. Um, and they talk about that in bedpost confessions too in Texas, uh, even though that's a, a mostly non-indigenous audience. It's a they talk about the kind of sexual healing that can happen because, of course, they've had incredibly religious, a uh, kind of Christian oppressive Christian anti-sex practices across Texas because it's such a it's such a it's part of the Bible Belt, right? And so it's this really kind of important. Um, a uh, place of reflection of being able to be open and unashamed because there's so much shame around sex. And of course the state, as we were speaking earlier, wants you to feel shame around sex, right? Because it's not productive <laughs> to be off having sex and expressing your desire and relating in these kinds of ways. So, um, you know, that, that goes back to what I was saying earlier about, um, compulsory, uh, pro- Reproduction, right? Sex is only supposed to be for reproduction. It's okay to talk about it in that in that aspect, but not for pleasure. So, as part of TP Confessions, I have a co-producer who's a graduate student. Her name is Kirsten Lindquist, and she and another one of my graduate students, um, Brittany Johnson uh, they, Kirsten's doing her PhD in our faculty of native studies. And Brittany is across campus doing her PhD in English and film studies, but has a master's degree from native studies. Um, they are both doing indigenized burlesque and they started an indigenous burlesque collective as a kind of spinoff of TV confessions called Beaver Hills burlesque. And Beaver Hills is a double entendre, uh, because Beaver Hills in English means, um, it's the English language translation for, uh, Edmonton, for what what was Edmonton. And then it was renamed by Settlers, the city of Edmonton, where the University of Alberta is. So they do some pretty politicized burlesque. They will, um, for example, Kirsten does a piece called Working for the Government, which is a Buffy St. Marie song. And for those who don't know, Buffy St. Marie is a well-known Cree rock singer, very well known up here. Um, but she's been around since the 1960s. And uh, in this song, Working for the Government, I think it's about a Native person working for the federal government. And that's kind of a stereotype or a trope in our communities, the government Indian. And so Kirsten plays this song, which is super rockin'. And she comes on stage in her suit with her briefcase and her sh- her like government issue shades on. <laughs> and then she starts stripping. And she strips first down to tidy whities very unsexy. But she turns around and on her butt is written, uh, the white paper and the white paper was an, imp- was a policy paper, I think put out by the first Trudeau government, uh, Justin Trudeau's father, Pierre Trudeau. And it was, uh, again, kind of late 20th century sort of, um, Patronizing federal Indian policy and indigenous communities at the time really spoke back to the white paper. So for, for people in Canada, especially Indigenous people, they'll know exactly what she's what she's doing. What's the story being told and pushed back against in that particular performance? So that's the kind of burlesque that, um, that the burlesque dancers do in Beaver Hills burlesque. And the so both Kirsten Lindquist and Brittany Johnson are writing their dissertations in part around the practice of burlesque uh, as a as an act of sexual decolonization. They're looking at the policy politics of that they can sort of work out on stage. Um, and they're also, uh, they'll, they'll dance. They're doing, I think, burlesque workshops with other people who want to get involved in a sort of decolonial burlesque practice. TP Confessions as a show in general is a place where people can find the space to not feel shame about sexuality, to see others being open about it, to laugh about it, right. To, uh, be able to take joy in. uh, talking about sex explicitly and openly. Just another example, uh, Brittany Johnson uh, did a really interesting piece that was like, unlike Kirsten Linquist's piece, which was a critique of federal Indian policy in Canada, Brittany Johnson, because she's a literary scholar, took on a literary controversy that happened up here a few years ago in Canada. There's one of the most well-known writers in Canada is Joseph Boyden, who had been identifying as Métis and other Indigenous peoples for a while. And it comes we come to find out that he's probably not. (laughs) Uh, This is kind of a common problem of people claiming to be Native or have Native ancestry who don't, like Elizabeth Warren in the United States, Um, or it's so distant we can't really affiliate it with any particular community. So Brittany did a piece as uh, she danced to Miranda Lambert's song. Cause Brittany's also a country music singer, beautiful voice, but she, so she knows country music. She danced to Miranda Lambert's song. I feel a sin coming on, or I think actually it's with Miranda Lambert's other group. Um, Pistol And so I Feel a Sin Coming On is about a, a, a woman getting all hot and bothered. Uh, and so Brittany comes on stage in this very puritanical outfit, a long black skirt, a high collared white lace shirt with a brooch at the neck, I think, or it's all buttoned up to the top. And she comes on and she's sitting on stage in a chair and she's getting all hot and bothered listening to I Feel a Sin Coming On. So it looks like Brittany Johnson is reading the Bible when she sits down on stage and uh, she starts undoing her shirt and stripping because she's getting all hot and bothered. And by the end of the song, it turns out that she's reading Joseph Boyden's book, The Arenda, and The Arenda as sort of a literary Bible. Like, again, he's huge in Canada. And she does this dance at the time that he's being taken down by indigenous people for pretending to be native. And so at the end of the song, she rips up the arenda and throws it. So it's sort of a form of throwing off the colonization of sexual, of of, uh, repressive sexuality, but it's also throwing off the, the, the colonial move that happens when white people claim to be native. And I write a lot about this in my own work, sort of as a way to, not feel complicit in colonialism as a way to exercise other kinds of ownership claims. So there's a lot going on in their burlesque, and especially if you're indigenous, you'll really understand what they're doing. Um, so it's very sexy, but it's also super intellectual, and they're going to be writing about this in this process in their dissertations. And so for us, burlesque has been, and for for not for these graduate students, uh, it's been such an important mode of expressing decolonial kinds of ideas or anti-colonial kinds of ideas. Because to be clear, the way that we use decolonization follows Eve Tuck and Wayne Yang's definition, which is that it requires giving land back uh, and decolonization requires uh, returning indigenous land and life. But we can think about this as a return of indigenous life, because you're thinking about a a return of sexuality of another way of relating
1: We will link to all of these performances and I think that these women are doing such important work. I would love to speak with them. And so thinking about self-expression and how to utilize these different art forms, I'm curious about your critical poly 100s, which you began as part of a writer's group. How did you choose this format as an avenue of expression? And what reflections do you have on the process of auto-ethnographic writing, particularly in relation to sex, sexuality, and sexual experiences? Since these autoethnographies, I think, unsettle the clinical ethnographic voice of colonial anthropology. And would you be so kind as to share some with us?
0: So the Critical Poly 100s, I started writing those as part of a weekly writing group with my friend Cersei Sturm, who's an anthropologist at the University of Texas. She's also an actor. So like me, she goes back and forth between anthropology and Creative practice, and we would uh, each each woman. It was seven women. Each woman would take a day of the week, and we'd write our 100, which is 100 words. It could be from anything. It could be from a, a, a novel you're working on. It could be a paper you're working on. It could be a poem. It could be. For me, I decided to turn it into discrete 100-word vignettes that, in and of themselves, were a finished piece of work. I think a lot of the other women did 100 words as part of a broader writing project, and I love the discipline of it. So this is interesting. I'm a super vanilla person, really vanilla, but I guess the way in which I want to be bound and I find it generative, really generative is to be limited, strictly limited to a hundred words. I find it so generative and so powerful. And I find that I reach a level of incisiveness in my analysis that wouldn't be possible if I had a thousand words right? Um, so it's been a really generative but restrictive practice. So that's kind of been interesting to watch myself really just love, <laughs> love the, the, the restriction, the inhibition of 100 words. And uh, I started out writing these 100 word vignettes to be about my polyamorous practice, but they very quickly transitioned into also being about other kinds of relations. So for example, I have a critical polyamorous 100 called Yeg, Hashtag Yeg, Y-E-G, summer sex. And hashtag Yeg is our airport code for Edmonton. And that one is both about sex, but it's also thinking about the relations of the, the air around me. So this one's called Yeg, summer sex, and it was written on 8317. Our breath slows. Ceiling fan turns the cool into a flock of birds, tiny ghosts. Their wings flutter across my outturned calves and the arch of your tapered back. The swells and concaves everywhere on you, pro-ballplayer length. Forgive me my shallow ways. I love your legs. Sweat shines in the coulee between your pectorals. They expand to my breasts, warm and soft. You will recover quickly. I am awed by your power. After 20 minutes, 20 laughs, we'll go again. I am your least strenuous exercise. In the wan Edmonton summer, the sheets stay dry. No sweat, rivulets. So I think by that time, this is, uh, I think, three or four years into writing The Hundreds, I had gotten pretty pretty good about going back and forth all the time between these moments of relating with another human body and also relating with the, the elements in the air around me. Let me see if I can find another one to read. Oh, this one's kind of funny and interesting. <laughs> this is about um, another podcast interview I did, uh, where I was asked this question uh, by this podcaster, and you'll hear his name in the, in the vignette but it's recounting a story of somebody I dated when I lived in Austin, Texas, um, a relationship that I won't say it didn't work out, even though it ended because we both transitioned into other really interesting kinds of realizations about our relationship practice. So this one is called Sex Ergonomics, and it was written on 618-17. What is your favorite position? Dominus Blue commanded. Uh, it depends. Bodies fit together differently. I like my hair pulled, but didn't know until my firefighter roped it round his wrist, a tether for rear-end thrusting traction. I thought breasts were my lubrication until hardcore Alberta cyclists neglected them, kneading instead my bottom like bread. Huge hands. I didn't know that I could love a smaller woman's body than I did. I didn't know the drug of melting chocolate with two tongues until the monogamist, who kissed hard through his suffering, before he left me and his wife for that homeschooling mom. (laughs) So (laughs) that was kind of funny. Poor thing. He did try non-monogamy. It just wasn't for him. You know, it wasn't for him, uh, but he really gave it a good try. I do take autoethnography as a as a guide to thinking about how I, and this is partly why I came to write the Critical Poly 100s. I don't want to do traditional ethnography on polyamory. I don't want to consent it. I don't want to set up the study that way. I don't want to turn my relations, uh, Either people I'm in a relationship with or other non monogamous in the world that I'm friends with or that I'm in community with, even if I don't know them, they're potentially part of my broader national and global community, I don't want to turn them into research subjects. And I talk about this in my Native American DNA book. I didn't want to interview indigenous people or native people about their thoughts about DNA testing. I don't want to make my own people research subjects. So I decided to make scientists research subjects because I thought the power dynamics were a little bit better. I was studying across or studying up instead of quote unquote studying down a less powerful subject. And so I've already learned that lesson with polyamory. I'm not going to go study other polyamorous. I'm not going to inhibit my good relations with by making them research subjects. But, you know, it is hard for me to turn off my anthropological mind when I'm involved in these polyamorous relationships, even if they're not partners, but they're friends and poly meetup groups and poly Facebook pages and things. I'm always thinking like an anthropologist. Everything to me is looking at uh, cultural practice. So I decided one of the ways that I could capture some of those insights without having to do old school anthropology is to write creative nonfiction vignettes. So I mix up the genders, I mix up the places, I mix up uh, experiences, and I always run a hundred, even though it is in a in a part part fictional, part nonfictional. It's totally anonymous. I always run it by my partner, or and also if they're married, their wives, if they're implicated in it, or their other partners, um, to get their consent to make sure they feel fully anonymized. And I've never. I've had people at the beginning of a relationship say, I don't want you to write about me. And then later on, when they see my hundreds or they see my blog, they're like, Oh, oh, well, that would be okay. I'd actually be really flattered if you wrote about me. And then I but I will wait until they they say that. And then I will I'll bring it to them and make sure that they feel um and they love it. People, they love they're flattered by it um, quite often. But it so that's why I decided to actually start writing creatively, was because really to to, to write ethically about these things without having to frankly give the state and the university kind of some kind of jurisdiction over my love life. And you can't write about, you can't write about, you You really shouldn't be doing, it's hard to do research with people you're having sex with, which is a whole other thing for sexuality studies researchers, I'm sure. You know, it's uh, it's difficult to do that kind of work. So this is uh, the autoethnography and the creative, creative nonfiction vignettes are a way that I found to capture some of those insights without actually doing anthropology. But certainly the history of, ethical and unethical anthropology and, and methodological history certainly inform the creative work that I do, as well as the Method of the Hundreds, which was founded by, I think her name is Emily Bernard at the University of Vermont, a creative writing uh, professor who founded this method. And it's really taken off. There are hundreds or if not thousands of writing groups that do the hundreds. And there's a couple of books on the hundreds now too. I think Katie Stewart and Lauren Berlant uh, co-edited a book on the, on the method. It's really a pleasure talking to you, Leanne.
1: If this episode turned you on, consider dropping a five in the ratings, subscribing to the show and sending it to a friend. You can help us build our audience this way and we would be so grateful. Special thank you to Liliana Estees for editing this episode. Thank you Casey Odesser and Sasha Carney for their rigorous research and preparation for these conversations and to Ben Euphrat for his continued guidance on this show. Stay sexy, folks.